0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's
1: a joy to welcome today to the Beeson Podcast, Dr. Alistair Begg. Alistair is with us at Beeson to preach in our Beeson Pastor School. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here. Many of our folks will know you through your wonderful ministry by radio and preaching around the world, actually. Um, Tell us a little bit about you. You you live in Ohio. I know you're the pastor there of uh, Parkside Church near Cleveland, but you're not from Ohio, are you?
2: No, I'm actually quite a long way from home. Um, I was born in Glasgow, the second city of the British Empire. I'm just reading the biography of uh, Thomas Lipton at the moment, uh, the team, the team magnet, and I didn't realize that he was also born in Glasgow. Um, yeah, born in Glasgow in 1952 uh, to uh, Christian parents. Uh, interesting sort of background insofar as my roots go back into Scottish Presbyterianism in the highlands of Scotland. But by the time my parents were married, both of them had been baptized as believers. And uh, so I was uh, brought up in a in an interesting context. I was brought up in a in a large denominational mission hall that was founded after uh, Sankey had been there at the turn of the century. He did that in Edinburgh and in the cities that he had peculiar effectiveness in so I grew up uh, in a in a place that had regularly congregations on uh, Saturday nights at rallies and Sundays at the services of uh, over 2,000 people just completely jammed in. Mm. Uh, an interesting combination of sort of evangelistic fervor and, uh, and social engagement. Mm. And that was my exposure uh, throughout my early years. And I, it was there that uh, someone must have shared the gospel with me because I remember as a very small boy going home to inquire of my father what this uh, Sunday school teacher must have said. Concerning knowing Jesus, and my father was a wise man, and uh, actually he led me to Christ just as a small boy on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, I knew enough about uh, sin because I had already developed a temper and Mm. a bad attitude towards my younger sister. Mm. Um, And in a very simple way, he asked me, he said, you know, if you will turn to Christ and, and ask him to forgive you and make you the kind of boy he wants you to be, and, and and so I did, and that's, that's the genesis, as, at least from my perspective, of of where my Christian pilgrimage begins.
1: It's interesting you mention uh, Sankey and Moody and the long trajectory of their legacy. Uh, we've had Richard Buse here before, and he talks about his grandfather being converted in a Moody campaign in Plymouth, England, right. and out of that conversion a whole um, – a whole family tradition of ministers and missionaries, people who serve in Christ. So it's a long shadow that is people it really like that. Is, isn't cast. It? Yeah, so yeah, it's it's,
2: it's, a, it's a wonderful thing.
1: Now, one of the churches in Scotland that you were involved in ministry was Charlotte Chapel, right? Which is still a great, thriving church in Edinburgh. Yes, it is. Uh, tell us about Charlotte Chapel.
2: Well, Charlotte Chapel, uh, I just spoke at their two hundredth anniversary, um, so it's well, that's, that's how long it's been around. Hmm which is remarkable, yeah. um, it, it almost, <clears throat> the, my knowledge of it, my, my, my awareness of the history of it is, is sketchy, but I do know that it was almost, uh, uh to be closed down until the arrival of an unknown fellow called Joseph Kemp, who came from the borders of Scotland, mm-hmm. and the church had dwindled to a handful despite, uh, illustrious beginnings, And um, this man came, and under God, he was, he, his, his arrival coincided with the outbreak of the Welsh Revival at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. And he had gone to Wales and was caught up in some of that and was a great evangelist. And under him, uh, Charlotte Chapel was um, resurrected, we might say. Uh, Joseph Kemp then went off, I think, to Australia or New Zealand. And then he was followed by Graham Scroggie. Oh, yeah. and of course Scroggie was uh, the, the sort of erudite Bible teacher, not like Joseph Kemp at all. Uh, in fact, Scroggie was awarded a Doctor of Divinity degree from Edinburgh University, from New College, wow. on the strength of his Thursday night Bible studies, which is remarkable when you think about it. The members of the faculty came to those studies and, and listened to him. People said that university students used to take notes in his long prayer. Mm. That's how good it was. Mm. But anyway, uh, and then uh, you know that 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 he was then followed by uh, Sidlow Baxter. Yeah, Sidlow Baxter was followed by Gerald Griffiths. Gerald Griffiths was followed by Alan Redpath. Alan Redpath was followed by Derek Prime, and uh, it's it, it, all Englishmen, funnily enough. Yeah, and you worked uh, with Derek, and I was I, I had the immense privilege of being uh, Derek's assistant from seventy five to seventy seven. And and now uh, the fellow that's just gone there is a chap who was in Seattle, uh, a Scot whose name escapes me just for the moment. But uh, uh, it continues to thrive as an outreach to the city and to the university population.
1: One of the things that's interesting about you is the fact that you are a Baptist, mm-hmm. but you're also Reformed in your theology. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us know that's not such a puzzling thing if you know Baptist history, but to a lot of people in America, that's those th- two things don't usually go together. Say a little bit about your Baptist conviction and your Reformed uh, theology.
2: Well, you know, I think that growing up in Scotland, there's such a there's such a sort of, especially in my roots, a sort of unstated conviction about the essentials of biblical theology, and and so. I think that I had come to all these things not quite from my mother's breast, but um, I had never, I, I didn't, I didn't come to them as a result of sitting down and somebody saying, "Now this, this is a systematic theology. It looks like this, and it doesn't look like the other one." I think I would have to be honest, though, and say that until I actually started to do biblical exposition on a regular basis in the first church that I went to serve. Uh, and in particular, you know, when I got to like John chapter six, and I preached through John chapter six, I remember saying to Sinclair Ferguson, who's a mutual friend mm. of ours, I, I remember saying to Sinclair, I don't know how, why do I get invited to these reform conferences? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I never describe myself in that way. And Sinclair said, you don't need to. You don't need to. And I think those also have been the models for me. Derek Prime Mm. would never have led with that. He would never have pulled that as a flag up a pole. Um, Eric Alexander in the same way. Um, To some extent, also someone like Martin Mm. Lloyd-Jones, who would have been thoroughly convinced of those things, but even in his little book, What is an Evangelical?, he lists that as one of the areas that he doesn't see as a basis for disagreement or uh, the breaking of harmony or schism amongst the, the body of Christ.
1: Yeah, it wasn't a badge of bragging. Right. Uh, and right. so that's sometimes right. what it has, of course, become, I which so. detracts and I, in a yeah, way.
2: I'm, yeah, I'm noticing a, new, a sort of new, a new breed around uh, that uh, needs tempered,
1: I think, a little. <laughs> Well, you mentioned Martin Lloyd Jones. I wanted to ask you about him because uh, you actually heard him and knew him a little. Well, I couldn't. I couldn't say that I knew him,
2: but I did meet him, and I had uh, very good friends who were were his friends, and so vicariously, I, I, I knew maybe a little more of him than others would have known. And subsequently, um, I've known his his daughter, uh, oh, Lady had, Elizabeth um, Catherine yes, Elizabeth, Catherwood. and I've. I, I did a paper on Lloyd-Jones for a pastor's conference some time ago and spent quite a considerable amount of time talking with Elizabeth uh, to ask her uh, about things that had been said and written about her dad to make sure that uh, they, that I was on the right track. It was actually quite fascinating to talk with her and get her perspective. But yes, I, was a, I remain a great admirer of Lloyd-Jones.
1: You know, Jim Packer is a good friend of ours, and, and Jim um, and, and, doc- and the doctor, as he was called, right. uh, came to part ways on a number of issues, a um, very, very painful episode, I think, probably for both of them. But uh, when Jim speaks about uh, Lloyd-Jones, he always says he was the greatest man he ever knew mm-hmm. and the greatest preacher he ever heard. So there was a great power and anointing on Lloyd-Jones and his ministry. One one of the things about him, um, later in his life, he seemed to come to a more open embrace of, I wouldn't call it the charismatic movement, but a a sense of the spirit, uh, the Keswick movement. Uh, Say a little bit about that. Well, you know,
2: one of his best friends when he was at Westminster Chapel was a fellow called Willie Richards, who was a Pentecostal minister in Slough. Um, in, in near Heathrow Airport in London, and he and Lloyd Jones apparently were um, were happy confidants for one another, and the, the, I, I think their point of connection would be f- obviously first of all just in the gospel, but through the scriptures, but also in terms of Lloyd Jones, um, as is obvious from his views in, in Ephesians one, um, had you know a genuine yearning for the sense of uh, uh, God's abiding presence in both in his life and in his preaching. And depending on how we want to view this, that made him, if you like, sound like others without actually necessarily embracing what others were saying. And, uh, you know, I think Ian Murray, um, in the work that he's done on Lloyd-Jones, um, has probably got as good a handle on this as anyone although Ian also would bring his own perspective to it in the, in the way in which he writes, not that he would be clouding the issue, but I think he's very concerned to rescue the memory of Lloyd-Jones from any kind of contaminating influence by people who wanted to seize him as a as a poster boy for what they're saying. But I don't think there's any doubt that, that Lloyd-Jones was uh, absolutely uh, convinced of, you know, just wrestling with, with the implications of, you know, if a man loves me, he will keep my commandments and I too will love him and will show myself to him.
1: There's a deep experiential right. uh, tone in Absolutely. everything uh, Lloyd-Jones preaches. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that's wonderful. Now, uh, you were born in Scotland. Now, you studied in London at mm-hmm. L- London School of Theology, London Bible College that's in the, days gone right. by. In the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> right. And... Um, so that that was how, in a sense, you were theologically formed. But you've mentioned several ministers already, who obviously Derek Prime, Lloyd Jones, who had an influence on you. Are there others that shaped your sense of ministry and particularly pastoral ministry? Well,
2: well, Spurgeon from a distance and through his lectures, definitely. You know, uh, um, yes. So Spurgeon Spurgeon has has to be there, and some of the old Scottish divines, Samuel Rutherford, mm. people like that. I mm-hmm. mean. The, again, that sense of um, evangelistic fervour in in Rutherford that was uh, combined with a real, deep seated godliness and and a, and a real clear understanding of man's part and God's part in the work of the gospel, but. Uh, 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 you know the Bonner brothers as well in the same in the same sort of vein. Those things, um, Scots worthies, have been part of my background just from books in the house and mm-hmm. and things that I've read. Um, in the uh, context of uh, the more contemporary world, uh, Dick Lucas oh, yeah. at St Helens Bishop's Gate has been a, a formative influence on me. I met him when I was twenty at a conference in Austria. And uh, he did uh, the, uh, Romans uh, five through eight, and um, in in masterful form. And uh, from then on, I was uh, I was a great fan of Dick mm-hmm. Lucas, and, and he's been a he's been a big help always from a distance, but mm-hmm. a help nevertheless.
1: Eric Alexander, I Eric think you've Eric as well, things, uh,
2: Eric and and. Uh, you know Jim Jim Philip and George Philip Willie Still, oh, yeah. th- those yeah. Scottish uh, fellows loomed over me. Um, in a different vein, George B Duncan, who preceded Eric Alexander, he he's was not
1: a name so well known in the states. He's not well known. But, uh, was a great uh, preacher. Do I associate him with Keswick somewhat? Yes,
2: he was very very well uh, loved at Keswick, mm-hmm. and um, did the did the um, I was going to say he did the Bible readings. I'm not sure if he ever did the Bible
1: readings. I think I read a book of his that um, yeah. were originally delivered at Keswick uh, yeah, for a period of time.
2: Yeah, but George B. Duncan was an episcopal, I mean he was an Anglican mm-hmm. uh, who came to St Thomas's in uh, an Anglican church in in suburban Edinburgh and then from there he went into St George's Tron which was a Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. And um he he, were, he was masterful at alliteration. He he in fact his uh, Detractors despised him for his alliteration. You know, they, mm. they said that it was a very, you know, anybody who could alliterate his, his way through the entire book of Romans must be doing something wrong. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But as a but as a youngster going uh, going there sometimes on Sundays uh, with my folks. Uh, his his talks were memorable.
1: Yeah, do, and do you know Alexander White? Does his name oh, resonate sure, with yeah. you? Free Another Saint great, George's. yeah, absolutely. Scottish uh, preacher from. An, yep, yeah. and who who brings together that warm, flaming heart for God with a close reading of the text of Scripture right. and uh, right a great uh, Reformed kind of piety.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, It's sort of experiential warmth of. Of conviction, yeah. yeah, I've always been drawn to those characters.
1: Now, with all of this wonderful heritage and preaching tradition in Scotland, how did you end up in <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to say I ask myself that routinely, but
2: um, what happened was literally a man came out of the blue and knocked the door of uh, our manse in in Hamilton, in the west of Scotland, and said that. He was on a business trip, he represented a church in suburban Cleveland, and someone had given them in their pastoral search my name, and since he found himself in the country, he had taken it upon himself to come to Glasgow and to visit the church. And he arrived literally uh, at, at the door of my vestry on a Sunday morning before the service. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know the church. I didn't even know where Cleveland, Ohio was, I have to say to my shame. (laughs) And I went home and got an atlas and looked it up. And what had happened was a friend in America uh, who who had uh, come to Scotland to preach had got to know me a little bit, and he had just, in responding to a question again at Moody Bible Institute at a board meeting at Moody, Someone had said, uh, we're looking for a pastor. Has anyone got any bright ideas? And the fellow gave my name out more as a joke rather than anything else, but uh, I guess their their, their uh, need was greater than he even realized. And they came and asked if I would come, and I declined their invitation. That was in 1981, and in a series of quite unbelievable events, the, the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah kind kinda of a second time, and uh, I... I felt that I had to come, and I came out of a real sense of conviction that, that, that this was in the purposes of God for me. And I think the fact that I've been there for the last 27 years speaks speaks to that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't mean that in any sense of self-commendation, but I just mean that I didn't come on a fool's errand, and I didn't come on a whim, and I didn't come to to discover America, because I'd been to America enough to know that if you're going to go to America, probably Cleveland wouldn't be in the top 20 choices. <laughs> and so there yeah. we are. Yeah,
1: well, that's remarkable, 27 years. In many denominations, the average stay of a pastor is three to five. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, in some, much less than that in some cases. Now, you call your church, your church is called Parkside Church. It's a Baptist congregation. Why don't you use the word Baptist in the name of the church?
2: Well, actually, because it isn't a Baptist congregation. I mean, that's the honest answer. <clears throat> the church I came to was called The Chapel. It had affiliated itself through Trinity Seminary as an evangelical free church in establishing itself in the, in the late 60s, very early 70s. The first pastor that they called was a fellow called Walt Hanson, who um, now teaches, I think, at Fuller. And uh, Walt came from Trinity, from Ted's, and basically the EFC association affiliation was uh, uh just a marriage of convenience to give them some kind of identity when i arrived uh, the first pastor was there about 5 years when i arrived probably 8 years after the inception of the church they were starting to question whether they were re- whether they were the evangelical free church and or whether they should just be an independent congregation and um it, it suited them, and actually it suited me to to find ourselves in that way. They never thought to affiliate with anyone else at all. And so I have in large measure been responsible for the sort of constitution and defining of the church. That is both the benefit and the danger of independency. Because if, <clears throat> if the person that fills fulfills the role that I fill... Um, is uh, autocratic or or whatever it can be a really bad setup. Mm-hmm. Um, so although we are we, although we are um, uh, Baptistic in our mode of baptism, uh, you know we would be Presbyterian in our form of church government. insofar far it would be an elder ruled or led church. Mm-hmm. So we're an eclectic kind of thing. And when we built a new building about uh, seventeen years ago now, and we moved uh, geographically the name The Chapel was starting to be a, a, be a pain for re- reasons we don't need to go into. And in the establishing of, of this new building in a new place, um, it's just adjacent to a 40-acre park. Since we were called The Chapel which didn't even have the name church in it. Mm. At least I thought I made an advance to identify as a church. And without fighting the battle of the varieties of people represented in the church, we just settled for Parkside Church.
1: When you look back over 27 years of uh, what has to be called, I think, successful pastoral ministry just to survive 27 years is remarkable. But then the church to thrive and grow and deepen in its commitment, uh, when you look back over that tenure of your ministry uh, what are the things that you would say I've learned what would I do differently you're speaking to, uh, Alistair to a number of pastors younger pastors that are beginning their pastoral uh, work uh, what have you learned in this seasoning time of your life well probably I haven't learned as much as I should learn hopefully I've got enough time to learn
2: um, before we finish a, a number of things I, you know Cornerstone to it would be the sort of Isaiah sixty six, uh, maybe sixty six, maybe not. Um, you know the verse, um, "This is the one to whom I will look," says the Lord. Mm. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Mm. That notion of in the privacy of our own lives and hearts, getting, getting that settled, not once and for all, but sixty seconds a minute, you know, mm. uh, twenty four hours a day. That that. That sense of one can plant, another can water, but only God can make things grow, which is tremendously liberating and phenomenally humbling. Um, the the awareness of how important it is to build into the core relationships of, of leadership in the church, whatever that takes, and I don't mean that in a sentimental way, but in not assuming anything about our understanding of Christian doctrine or the the way in which the church functions but being prepared to learn along with my colleagues whoever they are and I don't know much about American football even after all this time but I liken it to the quarterback's role in being assigned the privilege of advancing the ball up the field but if he is left vulnerable as a result of those big fellows that are supposed to look after him then he'd just be sacked all the time and uh if he's got a large ego and wants to run around the place, he probably deserves to be sacked all the time. And so there is a sense in which there's, again, that that notion of, I am entirely dependent on these, these folks, and together we can advance the ball up the field. Without them, we're probably going to have to run plays that are very short and And uh, stumble and bumble along along with that what Jim Boyce once said a long time ago now you know he said to me in conversation he said we we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and underestimate what we can accomplish in five Mm. and uh, just that notion of patience especially in starting out and especially for a younger person uh, I tend to still even after all this time be in a hurry all the time and let's get this thing going you know let's I don't spend a lot of time erecting, you know, monuments to success or uh, digging graves to failures. It's a sort of Philippians 3.14 life, you know, forgetting those things we press on. Uh, That can frustrate people around me who want to pause for a moment and say this was wonderful or Mm. commiserate or, 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 you know, uh, share in a lament. But uh, you know, I I think that uh, some of those things are there. Mm.
1: Uh, recently, you've had to struggle in your own life physically with a serious health issue. Uh, can you say a little bit about that and kind of how that's impacted your own life as a pastor and as a Christian? Hmm.
2: Well, yeah, I um, joined the ranks of uh, seemingly a, quite a large number of people who uh, – men particularly uh, – well, men only, but uh, it, at a particular stage in life and when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. I. I had a wonderful retiring doctor in Cleveland, not retiring in terms of uh, uh, personality, but he was about to retire. He'd been a Navy doctor. Uh, he was um, uh, just an old-fashioned doctor, and he had been watching over me for some time. And, and um, he said, I'm going to retire, and I've been watching your PSA, and, and um, I don't think you have cancer, he said, but I would hate to retire and find out that you did. So if you would let me, I'd like to do a biopsy, and uh, just to prove that you don't have it. So on a Thursday, he did the biopsy, and then on a Friday, he phoned me and said, You do have it. And um, so it was that uh, very strange moment, that uh, sucking in of air and, and sitting at my desk in my office and, and going, Okay. And um, uh, so one is immediately confronted. Just cancer itself has such a sort of... Uh, notion that uh, strikes to the issue of uh, the brevity and frailty of life and our own human mortality. Um, so I was, am- I was immediately confronted with things that I'd been dealing with in other people at arm's length, and now I had to deal with it myself. i found a number of things. One, surprisingly, it did not knock the wheels off my trolley. I think that this was is attributable to the immediate sort of surrounding me by my congregation in believing prayer and in, you know, we, we've we got your back kind of mm-hmm. thing. I don't think uh, it wasn't. I'm a fairly anxious person by nature about little things and tiny things. And so to be told this and then to set a surgery date three months out from the time that I discovered it and to never lose sleep for three months mm. um, is a testimony, I think, to God's peculiar grace in peculiar trials. Mm. Um, but um, I, the things that I learned and I resolved to do, I'm not sure I've done them all, but I resolved to you know, speak a little more slowly, uh, to uh, be more considerate of others when they uh, find themselves uh, in difficulties that I might have been prepared uh, previously to run a little roughshod over. Um, and things along
1: those lines there's a verse uh, I know you know it well and you must have preached it many times but uh, it's uh, increasingly important to me in my own life and I wonder if you'd say a closing word about it this is uh, Paul's letter to 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 uh, when he says he has this thorn in the flesh that's come to him uh, actually he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me and keep me from being too elated he pleaded with the Lord uh, to remove it, and the Lord said to him, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness."
2: Right? Yeah, yeah. I think um, Peterson paraphrases that to keep me from getting a big head. The Lord gave this to me, um, and the notion, which is a very Pauline notion, isn't it? I mean, I when I came to the Corinthians, uh, you know, I, I didn't come you know, as a superstar I came in weakness and in. I think that this is one of the missing links in contemporary evangelicalism, uh the absence of a of a meaningful theology of suffering and weakness. That we're at the end of a long series of presenting Christianity as in such triumphal terms, such such triumphant terms that I think we've lost many people sitting out in the congregation because they can't identify with the triumph, you know. Uh, we, we, um, uh, the disciples, the but we're just in the line of the disciples, uh, uh, and now I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of cruel men. Oh, certainly not. You know, Peter takes Jesus aside to teach him the Old Testament. And, uh, and Jesus has to say, well, you do, you've got it upside down. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And, um, it, it's a wonderful thing that God will go to this extent because he loves us so much that he will that He will do these things for us and uh, provide us with uh, antidotes to stop us from becoming increasingly useless. And I suppose, in summary, you know, if dependence is the objective, then weakness has to be an advantage because in our weakness, then we grow in dependence. When I'm cocksure of myself, then then I'm, I might say a danger to myself and everybody else.
1: I've been talking to Dr. Alistair Begg. Uh, he is the pastor of Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you for this conversation, Alistair. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and support. Beeson Divinity School is an evangelical, interdenominational divinity school training men and women for service in the Church of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.